Section 7 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 7. How He Became President. Abraham Lincoln was first conspicuously named for the presidency at a meeting of the Illinois State Republican Convention, where a Democrat of Macon County presented to the convention two gaily decorated fence rails, upon which were inscribed the following words. Abraham Lincoln, the rail candidate, for president in 1860. Two rails from a lot of 3,000, made in 1830 by Thomas Hanks and Abe Lincoln, whose father was the first pioneer of Macon County. The production of these singular and appropriate tokens of the glorious advantages which our democratic institutions afforded to the humblest in life was a signal for enthusiastic applause. Mr. Lincoln, who happened to be present as a spectator, was loudly called upon for a speech. He rose from his seat, acknowledged that he had been a rail splitter some thirty years previous, and said that he was informed that those before him were some which his own axe had hewn. In the autumn of 1859, Mr. Lincoln, in compliance with invitations from various states, made several powerful speeches in favor of Republican principles, to one of which, that he delivered at Cooper Institute, New York, February 27, 1860, we already have adverted. These speeches confirmed the impression which had been growing in the public mind since 1854, that Mr. Lincoln, honest old Abe, as he was christened, was the man for president if the people could name their candidate. Yet few really anticipated his nomination. The Republican National Convention met at the Wigwam in Chicago, May 16, 1860. Not less than 10,000 persons were in the building, while vast throngs blocked the entrance and filled the grounds around, unable to obtain admission. Governor Morgan, of New York, called the convention to order at 12 o'clock and proposed the Honorable David Wilmot, of Pennsylvania, for temporary president. Mr. Wilmot was accordingly chosen and made a brief address to the convention for the honor bestowed, with some appropriate remarks as to the object of the assembly before him and to the great principles involved. Committees were next constituted. The Committee on Organization reported the name of George Ashman, of Massachusetts, for permanent president and vice presidents and secretaries from every state represented in the convention. On Thursday morning, the convention again assembled at 10 o'clock, and, upon the adoption of rules, it was agreed a majority should nominate the candidates. The Committee on Resolutions then reported the platform, which was adopted with enthusiasm. The immense multitude of spectators rising to their feet with cheer upon cheer of applause. The names of Messrs. 
Chase, Cameron, and Bates had been early urged as candidates. But it had soon become evident that the actual contest would be between Mr. Seward and Mr. Lincoln. It was proposed that the convention should at once proceed to the nomination of candidates, but an adjournment was had until morning. Had this motion to proceed at once to business been carried, it is more than probable that Mr. Seward would have been the nominee, as his, at that time, was the most conspicuous name before the convention. But, during the night, combinations were effected in favor of Mr. Lincoln, which eventually secured his nomination. Great excitement was manifested in the convention, upon its next sitting, and the interest with the audience was intense. Upon the first ballot, Mr. Seward had 173 and one-half votes to 102 for Mr. Lincoln, with others scattering. Upon the second ballot, the chairman of the Vermont delegation, whose votes had previously been divided, announced that, quote, Vermont casts her ten votes for the young giant of the West, Abraham Lincoln, end of quote, when the beginning of the end began to be felt throughout the convention. On this ballot, Mr. Seward had 184 and one-half to 181 for Mr. Lincoln, and the third ballot gave Mr. Lincoln 230 votes, nearly a majority. Hereupon, Mr. Carter, of Ohio, announced a change in Ohio's vote of four votes in favor of Mr. Lincoln, which raised the excitement of the convention to the highest pitch. Now, as the choice was certain, state after state struggled to be next in succession to change votes for Lincoln. The whole number of votes cast at the next ballot was 466, of which 234 were necessary to a choice. 354 were cast for Abraham Lincoln, who was, thereupon, declared duly nominated. When the loud applause with which the nomination was greeted had somewhat subsided, Mr. William Everts of New York City came forward and moved that the nomination be made unanimous. The motion was seconded by Mr. Andrews of Massachusetts, and the nomination was, accordingly, concurred in with unanimity. The excitement, consequent upon the nomination, spread from the convention to the audience within the building, and from them, like wildfire, to the crowds without, to whom the result had been announced. At the close of Mr. Everett's remarks, a life-sized portrait of Mr. Lincoln had been displayed from the platform, greeted with bursts of uncontrollable applause. The building vibrated with the shouts of the delighted thousands beneath its roof, and, with cheer upon cheer, the multitudes in the streets caught up the glad acclaim, while, amid the boom of artillery salutes, the undulation of banners, and the tempestuous gusts of band music, the intelligence of the people's choice flashed over the wires from Maine to Kansas, and from the lakes to the Gulf. A pleasant anecdote is related of the manner in which Mr. Lincoln received his nomination. He was at Springfield during the sitting of the convention, and, 
having left the telegraphic office after learning the result of the first two ballots, was quietly conversing with some friends in the office of the State Journal, while the casting of the third ballot was in progress. In a little time, the result was received at the telegraph office. The superintendent, who was present, hastily wrote upon a scrap of paper, Mr. Lincoln, you are nominated on the third ballot, which he immediately sent, by a boy, to Mr. Lincoln. A shout of applause greeted the message throughout the office of the journal, but Mr. Lincoln received it in silence. Then he put the paper in his pocket, arose, and said quietly, before he left the room, There is a little woman down at our house who would like to hear this. I'll go down and tell her. This was his excuse for retiring to the privacy of his own room, where he might commune with himself alone. The committee appointed by the convention to bear the official information of the result arrived at Springfield on the next day. Mr. Ashmum, president of the convention, addressed Mr. Lincoln in the following terms. I have, sir, the honor, in behalf of the gentlemen who are present, a committee appointed by the Republican Convention, recently assembled at Chicago, to discharge a most pleasant duty. We have come, sir, under a vote of instructions to that committee, to notify you that you have been selected by that Convention of the Republicans at Chicago for President of the United States. They instruct us, sir, to notify you of that selection, and that committee deem it not only respectful to yourself, but appropriate to the important matter which they have in hand, that they should come in person and present to you the authentic evidence of the action of that convention. And, sir, without any phrase which shall either be considered personally plaudatory to yourself, or which shall have any reference to the principles involved in the questions which are connected with your nomination, I desire to present to you the letter which has been prepared, and which informs you of the nomination, and with it the platform, resolutions, and sentiments, which the convention adopted. Sir, at your convenience, we shall be glad to receive from you such a response as it may be your pleasure to give us. Mr. Lincoln replied, Mr. Chairman and Gentlemen of the Committee, I tender to you, and through you to the Republican National Convention, and all the people represented in it, my profoundest thanks for the high honor done me, which you now formally announce. Deeply and even painfully sensible of the great responsibility which is inseparable from this high honor, a responsibility which I could almost wish had fallen upon some one of the far more eminent men and experienced statesmen whose distinguished names were before the convention, I shall, by your leave, consider more fully the resolutions of the convention, denominated the platform, and without unnecessary or unreasonable delay, respond to you, Mr. Chairman, in writing not doubting that the platform will be found satisfactory and the nomination gratefully accepted. And now I will not longer defer the pleasure of taking you, and each of you, by the hand. Upon shaking hands with Judge Kelly, 
of Pennsylvania, one of the committee, who had been observing his tall figure with admiration, Mr. Lincoln inquired, What is your height? Six feet three, replied the judge. What is yours, Mr. Lincoln? Six feet four. Then, said Judge Kelly, Pennsylvania bows to Illinois. My dear man, for years my heart has been aching for a president that I could look up to, and I have found him at last in the land where we thought there were none but little giants. Note, Judge Douglas was popularly called the Little Giant. End of note. On the 23rd, Mr. Lincoln formally replied to the official announcement of his nomination by the following brief letter. Springfield, Illinois, May 23rd, 1860. Honorable George Ashman, President of the Republican National Convention. Sir, I accept the nomination tendered me by the convention over which you presided and of which I am formally apprised in the letter of yourself and others, acting as a committee of the convention for that purpose. The Declaration of Principles and Sentiments, which accompanies your letter, meets my approval, and it shall be my care not to violate or disregard it in any part. Imploring the assistance of divine providence, and with due regard to the views and feelings of all who were represented in the convention, to the rights of all the states and territories, and people of the nation, to the inviolability of the Constitution, and the perpetual union, harmony, and prosperity of all, I am most happy to cooperate for the practical success of the principles declared by the Convention. Your obliged friend and fellow citizen, Abraham Lincoln. The news of this nomination was very acceptable to Republicans generally. Not only did they recognize in Abraham Lincoln a man of integrity and simple virtue, but one in whom was embodied the true democratic element of free America, a freedom lover, a right respecter, and a noble, talented statesman, sprung from the very heart of the masses. Confident of their man and devoted to their principles, as embodied and set forth in the platform adopted by the convention, They entered the contest with a zeal and industry which were without parallel in the history of the country. More noise was made in the campaign of 1840, when log cabins and hard cider were instrumental in electing William Henry Harrison, but the zeal of 1860 was more rational and all-pervading, betraying a resolute purpose not to be defeated which did much towards alarming the slave power for the perpetuity of its long-enjoyed sovereignty. Amid the varied acclamation which greeted the nomination of Lincoln and Hamlin, the following campaign stanzas, from the pen of William Henry Burleigh, may find an appropriate place here. Up again for the conflict, our banner fling out, and rally around it with song and with shout. Stout of heart, firm of hand, should the gallant boys be, who bear to the battle the flag of the free. Like our fathers, when liberty called to the strife, they should pledge to her cause fortune, honor, and life, and follow wherever she beckons them on, till freedom exults in a victory won. 
Then fling out the banner, the old starry banner, the battle-torn banner that beckons us on. Our leader is one who, with conquerless will, has climbed from the base to the brow of the hill. Undaunted in peril, unwavering in strife, he has fought a good fight in the battle of life. And we trust him as one who, come woe or come weal, is as firm as the rock and as true as the steel. Right loyal and brave, with no stain on his crest, then hurrah, boys, for honest old Abe of the West. Then fling out the banner, the old starry banner, the signal of triumph for Abe of the West. The West, whose broad acres, from lakeshore to sea, now wait for the harvest and homes of the free. Shall the dark tide of slavery roll o'er the sod, that freedom makes bloom like the garden of God? The bread of our children be torn from their mouth to feed the fierce dragon that preys on the south? No, never, the trust that our Washington laid on us for the future shall ne'er be betrayed. Then fling out the banner, the old starry banner, and on to the conflict with trust undismayed. The action taken by the Charleston, SC, National Democratic Convention, which convened April 23rd by the slaveholders, is conclusive evidence that they desired the success of the Republican Party in order to consummate the long-talked-of succession of the slave states. For the nomination of Mr. Lincoln, upon the unequivocal free state platform, seems to have prompted them to urge the most ultra-pro-slavery views upon the convention with the design of securing a division in the ranks of the democracy, whose union upon one candidate must have ensured the defeat of the Republicans. The more extreme of the Southern politicians took no pains to conceal their threats of rebellion and disunion in the event of a triumph of the Free State Party. Though the Northern Democrats in the convention were incredulous that the menaces would ever be carried out. But if it had been more generally believed, it is questionable if the popular vote of Mr. Lincoln would have been diminished. For those who supported him stood upon the broad, steadfast platform of human rights and God-intended equity, firmly resolved that freedom should henceforth spread her aegis over the whole country, and slavery be left to remain as the makers of the Constitution intended, in the states then already cursed by its baneful presence. The result of the ensuing election of November 6th 1860, was that Mr. Lincoln received 491,275 over Mr. Douglas, 1,018,499 over Mr. Breckinridge, and 1,275,821 over Mr. Bell. And the electoral vote, subsequently proclaimed by Congress, was, for Abraham Lincoln of Illinois, 180, for John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky, 72, for John Bell of Tennessee, 39, for Stephen A. Douglas of Illinois, 12. 
The following states cast their electoral votes for Mr. Lincoln. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, California. 16 in number. The intention of the American people in electing Abraham Lincoln to be their chief magistrate was to restrict the extension of slavery in the territories and to abrogate its political power, which had threatened to become perpetual. The consequences of that election have been widely different from what was anticipated. Possibly the people of the North would have permitted themselves to be governed by their apprehensions rather than their sentiments, had they foreseen that the insanity of their southern brethren would culminate in the terrible conflict which devastated the land. But, can there be a doubt now, when the ultimate issue of the shaking struggle between freedom and slavery is so clearly in view, that we are moving onward to better things, that the result of the campaign of 1860 was a thing ordained by providence for the best? He who does all things well has nations as well as individuals in his keeping, and that he permitted the events of 1860-61 to to culminate in civil war must have been for some divine purpose. A few generations hence, the world will look back with wonder and awe upon the appalling trial through which the Union passed. But, if they see as its fruits a nation of freemen, who shudder at the crimes of their fathers in buying and selling human flesh and blood, the sacrifice will be deemed to have been not too great. End of section 7